Hello, 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 and welcome to the Podcast Spotlight, the offshoot series of the Economical Rice Podcast designed for podcast fans and brought to you by podcast fans. I'm your host, Danny, and today I am excited to bring you another Podcast Spotlight first because we have an overseas guest today, Chris Tatum of the wonderful US-based podcast, Cross Examine Life. Chris, welcome to the show. Danny, I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, definitely. So... To get the audience familiar with you, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Of course. I work in the criminal justice sector here in the United States. I specifically work in courtrooms uh, sort of as a clerk, and I'm able to see the way that lawyers uh, you know, work in the courtrooms, make their arguments in front of judges and juries, and the way that they ask witnesses questions on the stand. And so I have a real interest in the way that questions are asked, and I have a real interest in some of the more difficult issues and thorny questions that uh, we find ourselves having conversations about on a daily basis. Hmm. Interesting. And uh, did you know your, your upbringing or maybe some of your influences from home, did that play into the reason why you decided to become you know, a, a court clerk? I think so. I am from a large family. I have four siblings, and I feel like growing up, we were always sort of competing for not only who could be the funniest, but maybe who could have the best arguments um, for who could sort of bring their you know position in the most persuasive manner. And so, you know, working in a job where I get to be around you know attorneys who are sort of doing that in a really excellent way, and basically competing you know, for a living um, was a lot of fun. Oh, awesome. Yeah, so then um, you have a podcast. It's called Cross-Examine Life, which is uh, very related to what you do in actual life. So uh, what piqued your interest in this and why did you decide to start this podcast? So Cross-Examine Life is the podcast that improves the way we disagree with one another. And the need for that arose during the 2016 presidential election in the United States. And if anyone recalls what was going on at the time, um, we were sort of sharply divided as a country over candidates on the far left and on the far right. And I really found that my friends had sort of lost the ability to respectfully disagree with one another. When I looked on the television, I saw political pundits who, instead of asking thoughtful and respectful questions of the other side, would try to outshout or outyell you know, their opponents. They'd try to... Um, you know, insult them maybe personally. And um, it sounded like we were no longer kind of talking about the meat of the issues. Instead, we're sort of making personal attacks and basically saying, I can't be friends with you any longer if you support this candidate. Mm. And that really broke my heart. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, uh, do you think that maybe some of that might have been due to the nature of politics itself in which it is a competition and you are trying to put one over on the other side rather than you know having the intention of coming coming to have a civilized discussion i do i think that a lot of that has to do with the way sort of voting systems work where one person does win hmm. i also think that there's a problem with the way that you know people try to hold on to elected positions for a long time and so often and when i try to imagine what a utopia would look like in my world it would involve representatives and legislators who can only serve for maybe like two years or four years. Um, they can't renew their terms right. and maybe pay like a very, very minimal amount. So it's not that attractive of a job to have. You no, know, it's like maybe like a school teacher, like it gets you by, but it's like nothing. 
And so if that were the case, I don't think we would see people doing whatever it takes to keep their seat, right? To make promises that they're not going to keep or to out talk or shout over someone else just to make sure that the voters hear them. Hmm. I think we would see sort of more civil dialogue because people would say, you know, I'm not going to keep this job forever. I'm not getting paid that much, but we're sort of in the service for the good of the country. Let's try to work as hard as we can to arrive at an amicable solution. Hmm. And we just don't see so, yeah, I think it's a result of a couple of different factors. Yeah, that's uh, that certainly points to a lot of deeper issues, which I would love to talk about in a different episode. But since this is an uh, this is a podcast about podcasting, um, I want to talk a little bit more about the production side of things because I think you do a couple of interesting things on your show. Uh, so let's start off with the introduction. So <laughs> I think. The way you sort of structure introduction, I don't think I've ever seen, at least the different elements that you put together, I don't think I've ever seen them in this way before. Uh, so you oh, wow. Have, yeah, yeah. So so you do this um, opening where you have this child uh, who, who says a line, the unexamined life is not worth leading. And then you have somber music playing in the background. And then you have uh, a preview of something your guest says before before a lady comes and introduces the show proper. And then you open you know, you know, in different shows, I kind of see like maybe one or two bits of these uh, being used as an introduction. But why did you decide to go with such a combination? So I am an avid podcast fan. And when people often ask me which podcast I'm subscribed to, hmm. I say, how long do you have? Because <laughs> I think the number that I'm subscribed to is over 200. So when I sat down to make a podcast, I just said, okay, what's my favorite elements of the 200 podcasts that I listened to and, you know, made a long list of like 30 things. I said, I'm going to take out the best four, you know, or the best six and try to incorporate them into my podcast. And so the one thing I noticed that like really grabs people's attention is when a kid comes on and says something, mm. your ears always like perk up because it's always adults talking in podcasts. But when a kid says something, you sort of pay attention. Mm. And I've noticed when a kid says something kind of profound, or like philosophically deep, that's probably even beyond the wisdom of the kid. It's like, oh, that's like cute. It's interesting, but also like it really makes me think. Yeah. If the kid can something that profound, maybe I should up my game as well. So is that uh is that your niece who is speaking or it's not. It's a girl who's no relation to me. Um <laughs> I was in touch with a bunch of different podcasters and folks who were thinking about starting podcasts. And I just said, Hey, I need a kid to record a thing. Does anyone want to do this? It was like a, fa a Facebook group about podcasting. And uh, this woman was like, yeah, absolutely. Like just send me the quotes and I'll let my girl, you know, record it. And like, so generous, so kind. And so um, there's some woman in Australia, I think, and, uh, or New Zealand, I forget which. And so, you know, I've loved that quote for a long time, right? It's um, sort of attributed to Socrates, mm. um, the famous question asker who was killed because he asked so many questions. <laughs> and you know, he, he posits that the unexamined life is not worth living. And I think that that's true, right? If you go through your whole life not examining what you're doing, not asking the deeper questions, what are you doing? Yeah. You're sort of skimming the surface. Maybe it's not worth living. And so I kind of asked the deeper question, well, what if we examine life? What if we ask those deeper questions? Is that life worth living? I think Socrates would say yes. And I would say yes. And because I get to see the courtroom all day and I get to see direct exams and cross exams, I say, what if we cross examine people and put them under scrutiny here on the witness stand? Then could that life be worth living? Yeah. 
Yeah, certainly. So that's sort of where that first part comes from. And then actually, if you listen to the trailer episode, um, you hear that I asked like, I don't know, 15 different people to sort of say that phrase. Mm. And they you can sort of hear different quotes from all of them saying it. And I just liked the girls most of all. So I used hers. And then the somber music, I sat down with a piano player, a friend of mine, who um, is just so talented. And she let me, you know, record what she was doing. And um, it was one of those electric keyboards where we could put like an SD card in the keyboard. So it just, we didn't have to use fancy microphones or anything. It just picked it up really well. And um, and so I said, you know, I want something serious because I want to convey this tone of like, this is not a comedy podcast. <laughs> we're not here to, um, like, we're here to tackle really difficult subjects. Yeah. And be vulnerable and be honest and go deep. Yeah. And then the lady is a is a good friend of mine from college and um she has sort of done a little bit of recording before for some friends and I just feel like she has like the best voice for, you know, podcast or for radio. Like it's just totally on point. And, you know, I'm so happy with it. So I feel like it's a good lead into me and I kind of wanted a different gender. You know, I wanted someone to hear a sort of opposite voice before they hear me. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. All right. So um, other than that, I've also noticed that uh, you have this lovely touch of uh, of adding this little bell ring in the middle of conversations where you, you add in your own commentary. So how did the idea for this come about? And, you know, do you have a name for this? So... I don't really. I guess I sort of call them like my, my like my 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 ding comments for lack of a better word. Ding in your 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 Tatum tinkles. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the name for it that works. Um, but you know, at this point, I really wanted people to be able to take something away from the podcast, so that besides just exemplifying what thoughtful and respectful disagreement can look like. I wanted to give them tools so that going forward, they can be like, okay, next time I find myself in a disagreement, I should count to five before I speak. And then I might be a little less emotional, you know, mm. something like that. And so I think if you listen to the earlier episodes of the podcast, I just do that sort of at the end, I give these takeaway tips and I say, you know, remember during the show when this happened and then remember when this happened. And I found that kind of recounting what happened during the show wound up, being like time consuming and not, I don't know, it just didn't feel very natural. And it felt like I was spending a lot of time like reminding people of what had happened. Right. So for one episode, I just sort of was like, I'm just going to give this a try and see what happens. I'm going to interrupt in the moment and say, hey, here's what I think. Um, and so, yeah, I just decided to sort of give that a try one episode. And the feedback from just a few people was pretty positive. They said, oh, we love hearing your thoughts. And since then, I've been asking more people for feedback. And generally, it seems to be like, that's our favorite part of the show. We love hearing how you think. We love hearing your recommendations. Like, you know, because there was a time I was going get, to get rid of that because it's like this extra work and extra editing. But people seem to like it. So Yeah, I, I definitely found it really interesting, especially, you know, when um, your guest is making really good points or they're doing really good stuff with their arguments and you just want to point that out as, as you know, effective, uh, as an effective way to communicate. I'm, I'm specifically thinking here of the Caravan episode that you did uh, with your guest Nikki, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there were so many points where she did so many great things in, in terms of the way she communicated. Like, for example, uh, setting the, I think it was setting the, uh, uh, I think the message right or getting the argument, getting the questions correct and stuff like that. And I was like, 
if, if anyone wants to hear a good example of like how to lay out your argument for a particular viewpoint, listen to the first like five minutes of that episode about the caravan. It's episode 39. Yeah, that was so good. You know, she just kind of layers it. She's like, okay, first point is this. Second point is this. And if you don't buy either of those first two points, here's a third point you should buy. <laughs> yeah. Did she did she have any debate experience or something? I... <laughs> uh, she is studying law, um, and so I suppose she has sort of some background in that. Um, but yeah, I think that what she exemplifies, though, I would argue, is possible for anyone. That you don't have to go to school to study law to be good at doing that. You just have to sort of mm. take the tips, you know, from someone like Nikki and say, okay, like maybe I'm going to number my arguments and I'm going to keep them pretty separate. And make sure that even if someone totally discounts one and two, three and four can still stand on their own. Right, right. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's brilliant. I, I love that. You know, you have these all these takeaway tips that listeners can listen, uh, can can use in their daily lives. Right. So then, um, so the premise of your show is that you know guests come on with like a topic they like to defend, and then you cross-examine their position. Right. So. Before before recording your episodes, do you do you have to look up and prepare questions for each of them, or is it more of a in the moment kind of thing? Yeah, it's a really good question because that's evolved a little bit. It used to be like pretty in the moment, where I would just wait and listen to what they say and then try to respond. Mm. And then I realized that I did better episodes if I anticipated their questions and then tried to think of responses. So I never ask them. Mm. I never tell them. You know, tell me what you're going to argue in advance. But I try to think. You know, as a lawyer might in the courtroom and say, what is the other side going to argue? And then how will I respond to that? So I'll usually map out what I expect, you know, say Nikki's arguments are going to be. And then I'll think of questions to like come back at her about those things. Mm. Um, other thing I found really effective, and if anyone in your audience is thinking about launching a podcast or is, um, you know, currently hosting a podcast, just this tip has been invaluable to me because I saw another podcast do it and it worked really well, is they would sort of post on Facebook um, before their guest comes on and they say, we're going to interview this guest about this topic. What questions should we ask the guest? Mm. And every time it flooded the conversation thread people are always jumping on ask this topic ask this topic check in about this ask what they say about this um and i think that's because people want to be part of the creative process Hmm. and they don't necessarily have the time and resources to go out and create a podcast themselves but they can sort of be part of the process by submitting a question right and by sort of saying like you know let my voice be heard on your show when you ask them this and uh and then i do you know and then i and then i sort of go back to the facebook group and i say hey uh i asked your question you know take a look at the episode and you know let me know what you think and that's always really rewarding for me because it's just another way of getting the word out there about the episode and sort of generating enthusiasm yeah definitely i think that's a wonderful way to build sort of listener engagement and sort of a creating loyal listeners yeah because you know i've 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 done this sort of uh, as well for my other show uh whereby I, I ask my friends who are listeners to to be a part of the creative process you know maybe i'll interview them or put them on for a segment and then they'll be like and i'll ask them you know hey you know what did you think of the episode and like yeah your episode was great especially the part when i was in it <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, but it, you know, it, it sort of helps to build that uh, that loyal following, I guess, which is great. People want their voices to be heard, and so it's like a great opportunity to do that. Plus, it really lets you post like twice as much, right? Instead of just posting after you release the episode, you're now posting before the you release the episode, mm. you know, and then after, and then going back to the original thread and being like, "Hey, by the way, I posted the episode." So you're almost like sort of tripling your sort of social engagement. Mm, interesting. All right. So then, um, you know, for some of the topics, right, do you find it difficult to to cross-examine them, you know, for topics that are not particularly interesting or controversial? Yeah, I do. Um, and sometimes I'll try to winnow those out before we actually, you know, get to the cross-exam. So I'll try to avoid doing an episode about it mm. um so let's see if i can think of an example um i guess there was this one about uh like bike helmets yeah and i was sort of like on the fence about that i was like is that gonna be really you know controversial or is that gonna really kind of get listeners attention and i think the answers to both those things are like no, it, like on its face, it's not especially controversial. And it, I don't think it's gotten listeners' attention in that big of a way. But if you want to hear really controversial viewpoints advanced, listen to episode 36 about bike helmets. That has got to be one of the episodes where my guest made points that I'm sure listeners are going to hear and be like, that is absolutely insane. That is ridiculous. <laughs> no way, no how. Um, you know, because it sort of gets down to like, how much say should the government have in your daily life? Right. You know, at one point I asked the question, you know, if I'm on my own property riding around on my bicycle, should I have to wear, should the government be able to require <laughs> me to wear a bike helmet? Right. You know, right. And you'll have to listen to the episode to hear her answer, but it's, it's fascinating. <laughs> uh, it was pleasantly surprising. I, I would say most of my episodes are sort of pleasantly surprising where I think maybe the topic will be so, so, and then it winds up being, you know, having these kind of earth shattering uh, consequences. All right. And then, um, yeah. So and then on the flip side, um, you know, how do you sort of maintain your composure in playing devil's advocate to a site that you particularly support? That's probably the question I get most often. <laughs> and I've not really discovered the secret sauce, but I guess I really try at the beginning of the episode to sort of enter into kind of like an acting role yeah. where I say, I'm going to set all of my personal feelings aside. They're not going to be relevant for the next hour. And I'm just going to focus on trying to prove this person wrong or trying to poke holes in their argument. And so I almost get sort of more enthusiasm from wanting to advance my own personal views, which, you know, are sort of neither here nor there mm. for the purpose of the episode, but saying like, can I find a hole? Can I like poke a hole? Can I, you know, find some sort of flaw in their argument? You know, does it, does it not really hold up to scrutiny? Cause I don't know, especially as a fan of Socrates, like that's sort of the more exciting thing, right? He never really cared that much about advancing too many particular positions. He more went around to so-called experts and said, so, you know, all about this thing. Hmm. Tell me about that. And then sort of brought them to this place where they were like, oh yeah, maybe I don't know as much about that as I thought. And I think if we could all around the planet just kind of like raise our hands and say, I don't know as much about that topic I claim to be an expert in as I think I do or as I say I do, hmm. I think we'd all be much better off. Yeah, yeah. Sort of like um, 
addressing more the principles of your argument rather than you know what which side it's particularly on. Exactly, and and, and I'm trying to get people to see like you believe that A and B and C and F are true, but because you have no opinion or you have no evidence about D and E, you can't say that like A through F all come together to like prove this thing, right? Like you have to also bring me evidence of D and E if you want to say that A through F collectively prove something, but they've forgotten along the way of their professional life or they're thinking about this issue, they've forgotten to ever collect evidence about D and E. Yeah. And so that's sort of my job to be like, ah, you're claiming A through F is a collective whole, but let's talk about D and E. Yeah. I think it definitely makes for some uh, interesting listen uh, to see how people think through the different thoughts and see how they react. You know, and you know, so I listen to some instances where, where your guests get a little bit flustered and I think <laughs> that's a bit revealing to me. <laughs> you think I'm like overly like harsh or sort of like, I don't know, pokey or something in my, in my approach? Well, no, no, because cause generally I find, you know, you having a podcast where you allow people to talk about these difficult topics, I think that is already a wonderful enough gesture that... You know, if you're asking difficult points or questioning their ideas, questioning their beliefs, I think they can respectfully sort of, uh, you know, it may challenge them and it may not be too much to their liking, but at least I think they can respect that. Yeah. That you'll be willing to listen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can I actually tell you something about that? A funny story about yeah. trying to bring guests on the podcast. I mean, I feel like most podcasts are like pretty friendly pretty jovial like you know the guest is always sort of like treated with a lot of respect and deference and yeah generally given a platform to kind of like talk about their thing and in my podcast the pitch is basically like hey do you want to come on my show and get torn apart and have <laughs> me poke holes in everything you say and prove you wrong <laughs> 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 trying to find guests for my podcast is like a real chore. Literally, I'm like, I'm like posting on Facebook, like, hey, who wants to come on and like defend something? And I like ask you a bunch of tough questions. <laughs> oh man, yeah. how do you even get guests? <laughs> it's really hard. A lot of thing, a lot of, you know, just sort of like putting, putting some, you know, issues out there. And I actually find when I put like really specific issues, it helps better than when I go general. Right, right. So if I say like, hey, to defend a general position, I'll get like a little response by say like, who wants to defend that Christians should be willing to vote pro-choice? Right. And then, you know, I'll get a lot more responses. Yeah. Because I imagine that like, especially for really, really tough topics, there are a lot of people who are passionate about uh, maybe a particular side, but that they wouldn't want to be, you know, come on a podcast and defend it, you know, maybe maybe because they're, they're afraid that their beliefs will get shattered or something. So Totally. Yeah. And, and, and I've had a lot of people say, oh, you know, I'd be perfect for that topic. I feel really strongly about that. Um, but no way am I coming on the podcast. <laughs> and I always say to them, like, you can come on on a pseudonym. Like, I'll call you whatever you want. It's no big deal. <laughs> I'd say like 50% of my guests have like come on as a under a pseudonym for sort of anonymity. And like, I'm fine with that. Yeah. All right. So. Right, so so last question uh, before I move on to talking about the podcast. So, this is something I'm I'm really curious about. Right, so after listening to a bunch of your episodes, um, we were talking about this a little bit earlier. I get this sense that there is a little bit of selection bias going on here, in the sense that the kind of guests who would want to appear on your show are already willing to sit down and have a civilized, proper discussion, even about really really difficult topics. But, you know, in your view, for people that are not like this, maybe they're 
overly hostile or guarded or, or you know, too emotional, do you think it is possible to have civil and rationalized, uh, rational discussions with them? I'm so hopeful and so optimistic. So I have to say <laughs> yes. And I really want those people to come on. Like I, I, I'm, I'm serious when I say that I look for the most extreme viewpoint holders. Mm. And oftentimes they don't want to come on. They're because they're just not interested right. in being challenged. They're not interested in maybe hearing my questions from the other side. But every once in a while they do. Um, and I get really excited. So I think episode 25 about whether Confederate monuments should come down. He was like really firmly entrenched that like Confederate monuments are fine and appropriate and there's no reason to take them down. Right. Um, you know, episode 27 about gun control. He says this was right after the shooting in Las Vegas. And he says the one thing we don't need is more gun laws in the United States. <laughs> it's a really controversial position, but he really dug in and it was like, you know, really serious about it. And then maybe the most difficult was episode 28, where we talked about provocative language in conversations. Mm. And the guest was basically saying like, yeah, sure, you can just like, you know, insult people and curse at them when you're disagreeing. It's fine. And I was like, really? Is that like, does that really help? <laughs> He's like, yeah, no, it's like, okay like and it, it doesn't disrupt the conversation so that i think made it a little harder and i will say that i feel like he was so entrenched in his position that maybe he had a difficult time seeing reason because mm. there were like a few times where i was like well then the other person stops listening to you and he's like well no problem with that like at least you were heard it's mm. like okay well like that's not exactly a productive conversation yeah. So I do think sometimes the holders of the more extreme viewpoints <laughs> uh, might have a harder time engaging in the in the sort of logic. Well, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I appreciate your optimism, and and really hope it becomes more infectious. But yeah, I I I, <laughs> I don't know, man. I mean, um, when I go through social media, Facebook, Twitter, or whatever, it. <laughs> Every time I see like a political thing being brought up, I just something a little part of me dies inside. Why? Because of the conversation I had. Yeah, exactly. It's uh so so typically what what I what I tend to find is that someone will post a viewpoint, and then the immediate response is an ad hominem attack, right? Or something that is just completely crazy, and then at that point, the effect of the attack is if is uh, effectively uh, you're going to break down that that civilized discussion because it's not going to take place. Totally. Yeah. One, once one side's going to get you know re really hurt over their feelings, they're not going to be able to think rationally. They're not going to come down and say, "Hey, you know, can you uh, list can you point down in bullet form your, what your arguments are for me and yeah. can you set the premises?" Just by way of example, someone would be like, "I think children should be allowed to vote," and someone else would be like, "Clearly, you've never had kids. You don't know how." which they don't understand things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, this isn't about whether or not I've had kids. It's about whether or not children could like make an informed vote. Let's talk about that. Yeah, so let's get on to talking about the podcast. And the first podcast that you have brought up today is this one called A Year of Listening. And the episode in question is episode two, the Supreme Court case of the cake shop and the same-sex couple with Aaron Beto. 
So already bringing on the really controversial stuff, Mm -hmm. Chris, why don't you tell us a little bit about what this podcast is and the episode in question? So Colleen Powell started a year of listening about a year ago, and the goal was to basically have conversations around all the topics that your mother told you never to bring up in public. (laughs) And she's done a great job of diving into the controversial issues and basically bringing on people similar to what I do, but without the sort of cross-exam part, Mm. basically say, Tell me about your controversial viewpoint. Tell me about this thing that, you know, we're not supposed to be talking about. Just lay it out for me. And then she kind of just listens and she asks some like really thoughtful questions that give them more space to talk. So it's not maybe as much as the challenging part, but it's like, you know, describe more about this and tell me more about that and help me understand. Um, And so if you've ever like really wanted to better understand some of these things, without hearing, you know, me go into attack dog mode, you know, you can sort of listen to a year of listening and get some of the similar topics and just the person kind of lays it out in a, in a very thoughtful way. And then Colleen kind of listens and asks these great, you know, respectful questions back. Hmm. Um, And so that particular episode, I think it's episode two um, about cake baker um, and the Supreme court case of, you know, whether or not the bakery should be required to, bake a wedding cake for a same-sex couple was fascinating to me for a couple of reasons. First and foremost, because I believe the guest was either a former Christian or a former sort of conservative hmm. and or at, at the very least was someone who believed they were straight. Let's say that. I'm not sure about the Christian part, but believe that they were straight. And then sort of over the course of their adult life kind of came to realize that um, in fact, I think she wanted to marry and spend the rest of her life with her wife. Yeah, she did. She she did tell her story about how she met her wife in the episode, and I thought it's a lovely story. Yeah, yeah, it was great. And then you know, she sort of, uh, I think she also kind of dived in in a very intelligent way into the case about the bakery and kind of described the nuances of it. So if you're if you only heard about that case in passing, it's a really good episode to listen to, to kind of dig in and understand how the court arrived at the decision that it did. And then she's able to kind of make it personal and say, well, this is how it impacted me hmm. personally. And so, you know, for those of us who might be on the fringes of this issue um, and we might say, oh, well, you know, a bakery should be allowed to bake for whoever it wants and we don't need the government regulating such things or, you know, maybe take the other side of the argument. She sort of says, well, yeah, you can have whatever political or policy view that you want, but at the end of the day, for me, it's personal. Mm. You know, it's like when my wife and I walk back, when my wife and I walk by some of these bakeries, we feel like we don't belong. We feel like we can't walk in the door. Mm. And then that kind of hits you and you're like, ooh, that's it's like more than a political argument for her. It's like, how does she feel walking down the street with her life partner? Yeah. Yeah, I I definitely agree with you there. And I think what Colleen's show does extremely well is that it's it's there to sort of uh, expand your your empathy, right? You're hearing right. viewpoints about people who might who who you might not be uh, familiar with or people you might never hear from, and then here they are telling their own personal story. And the effect of that is that you can sort of maybe relate to them a little bit better. You know, you maybe you find out why they're so you know caught up in in a in a in a matter such as this. You know, it's, it's just, you know some people might think it's just a cake shop, but then to them it's like, oh, this is how it affects me. This is how it affects people like me. And then yeah, that that 
I think that effect is really important, especially especially maybe for the purpose of discussion as well. When you want to talk with a different person, you know, you can easily offend someone if you're not very careful or very uh, sensitive to their condition. And I think this really helps with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, I really like what you said. Like, if you want to listen to someone find flaws in a legal argument, listen to cross-examine life. But if you want to grow your empathy and your ability to hear other people, listen to a year of listening. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So then, you know, on the flip side, right? Because, you know, as, as you've mentioned, this is not a show about cross-examine, right? I was a little bit uh, hungry for the other side. <laughs> Because, uh, you know, listening to just one side, I want to hear what, what, you know, the other side's perspective is. Um, and I think this is a really, really fascinating case. But, you, and, and I want to talk more about the case uh, in particular, right? So um, what are your thoughts on this, on, on the whole uh, cake shop thing? So you're asking me to go a little outside my comfort zone because as the person cross-examining my guests, I don't ever have to review my viewpoint. <laughs> 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 so long as this isn't a cross-examine life episode, I suppose I can review my viewpoint about this. Yeah. Um, I think my general approach to private business is that the government should have as little say as possible in how that business operates. Mm. And so if you want to, you know, say that we only bake wedding cakes, you should be allowed to only bake wedding cakes and not bake birthday cakes. And if you say we only bake um, anniversary cakes, you should be allowed to bake those and not wedding cakes or birthday cakes. Mm. Um, now, this gets thorny if you say we'll only bake cakes for black people, but not for white people. Um, then the Constitution of the United States steps in and says, hold on, wait a second. Um, under the sort of guise of equality, we say that, you know, it's d discrimination or discriminatory per se to not bake a cake for a white person if you're also baking it for a black person. Right. Um, and so, you know, because race is what we call a protected class in the United States, you can't sort of discriminate on those grounds. Now, imagine the person who comes in and says, um, I am a construction worker I'd like you to bake a cake for me. And they say, well, we don't bake cakes for construction workers. Are they allowed to do that? Well, yes, because your job status is not a protected class in the United States. And I, I don't know if it is in other countries, but um, they could sort of make a decision about whether or not they want to provide a service based on your job, you know, based on what your job is. Mm. Um, they could also do it based on your height. They could say, well, we don't bake cakes for tall people and we don't bake cakes for short people. Um, they couldn't do it if you had a disability because that's a protected class. Mm. They couldn't do it if it was because you're a Muslim and they say we don't bake cakes for Muslim because religion is a protected class. Mm. So see, there's sort of two categories. There's some things that are protected class like religion and disability and um, race, but there's some things that aren't protected classes like what your job is, like how high you are and, you know, things like that. And so my understanding is that uh, your sexual orientation has not yet risen to the level of being a protected class in the United States. Hmm. Yes, you are permitted to marry, um, but it's not sort of constitutionally a protected class for like employment and for 
sort of provision of services reasons. Mm. Does that distinction make any sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and actually, I think that's a, an amazing uh, insight that you provided because I was researching on this topic, right? And, you know, it was, it was saying that the big issue here was on freedom of religion and uh, to, to be able to, to, to not provide the cake service to the gay couple. So I think it's, it was interesting yeah. that you brought that aspect about the discrimination and the protected class because, uh, because the, the Colorado Commission, which was the one that uh, prosecuted the initial, the, uh, the initial uh, lawsuit against the cake shop, yeah. they would argue on the grounds that, you know, this is a discriminatory practice, you know, you know, don't do this, you know, please provide them the cake and stuff like that. So the Supreme Court actually decided it on the basis of this sort of uh, freedom of expression, I think, because they didn't want to have to reach the issue of should this be a protected class. Hmm. So, you know, the protected federal, the protected classes under the federal government right now include some of the things I talked about, race, color, religion, national origin, your sex, your age, whether you have a disability, whether you're a veteran, your genetic information, your citizenship. Hmm. But that's it. Height isn't in there. What type of job you have isn't in there. Your sexual orientation isn't in there. Yeah. It's not a protected class for employment discrimination purposes. And yes, this isn't employment discrimination because it wasn't like someone was fired for, you know, exhibiting a certain characteristic. But if we're going to say someone was discriminated against, then they certainly would have to prove that they're part of some protected class that's protected from discrimination, right? Mm. You know, if you if you worked for the competition cake company and they said, we're not going to sell to you because you're part of the competition cake baking company, they might have a legitimate right to not sell to you because they don't want you to deconstruct the cake and see their trade secrets yeah. about how they make cake, right? And so you could, you know, try to sue them and say, well, I have a, you know, legitimate interest in this and, you know, I'm I should be protected from discrimination, even though I'm a competitor or baker. Hmm. But if we look in the list of like who's protected from discrimination, like your competition is not a protected class, so they they couldn't successfully sue you. And so I think the Supreme Court didn't want to have to answer the question: Should sexual orientation be a protected class? And so instead, they sort of addressed it on the grounds of freedom of expression. Yeah, and actually, right. Um... I don't know if you're aware of this. I, I, I presume you are because you're working with uh, in, in the legal industry. Uh, but in June 4th, so the initial um, decision on this by the Colorado Commission was that, you know, hey, the, the cake shop, you know, you, you did something wrong here. You discriminated. And then, you know, please provide the cake. And then as well as to that, please change your company policy, provide comprehensive staff training regarding accommodations, discrimination, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, this cake right. shop, Masterpiece Cake Shop. So then they took it up the Court of Appeals, uh, went up all the way to the Supreme Court. And then in 2018, in June 4th, they they finally made a decision on this. So I, I thought it was, it was uh, extremely fascinating because so they came down and reversed the decision made by the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. And they stated that... Um, Although a baker, in their capacity as a business serving the public, might have the right to to exercise his free exercise of religion limited by generally applicable laws, 
a state decision in an adjudication in which religious hostility on the part of the state itself is a factor which violates the state's obligation of religious neutrality under the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment to the Constitution. So it ended up boiling down to the way in which the case was first um, handled by the Colorado yeah. Civil Rights Commission. It basically said the Civil Rights Commission exceeded their authority yeah. by striking this down and that the Civil Rights Commission could have gone about it a different way. And maybe if they had, they would have upheld it. But the way they went about it was wrong. Yeah, I thought that was that was fascinating because um, when, when, when I read further into the case, so what did the civil what did the supreme court mean by you know they they went over their their reach right was that commission would would say stuff like compare phillips's uh, religious beliefs phillips is the cake baker right uh he he compared his religious beliefs to defense of slavery or the holocaust and then the it's a bit extreme. yeah yeah a bit extreme and i guess this is what you know uh, made the 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 Supreme Court's uh, mind up uh, because uh, Justice um, Anthony Kennedy, I believe, he 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 noted that he found such comparisons to be inappropriate for a commission charged with the solemn responsibility of fair and neutral enforcement of Colorado's anti-discrimination law. Yeah, and and then like you said, you know, uh, Justice Kennedy also mentioned that he he may have been inclined to rule in favor of the commission if they had remained religiously neutral in the evaluation. Oh my God, I thought that was so fascinating. Yeah, because the the whole tension, you know, was um, the 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 point about religious expression and whether you know um, a a cake shop providing a business service counts as religious expression, right? Right. Because this is really a fifty fifty kind of thing. Because on one hand, you could say that yeah, it's just providing a cake. You're not really saying that you know you're not really saying whether you're a Christian or not just by providing a cake. Right. Right. But on, on the other hand, you could also say that you know, if if their business is known for providing this kind of services, you know, what how does it reflect on them uh, right. religiously? Right. So it's 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 sort of a split. And then you know, you bring this uh, point up about the uh, protected classes and the issue around that. But the whole case was decided, and it just sidestepped all these issues. <laughs> <laughs> Can I actually tell you something interesting about the way cases are appealed? Um, we. We have this sense in sort of like the public that if you don't like a court decision, you just appeal it to the next level and you keep appealing it until you don't have any more options because you got to the Supreme Court or something like that. And that's not yeah. actually the way it works. You have to cite a breakdown in the legal system below in order to appeal to the next level for the most part. And so... Oh. When you're actually filing an appeal to you know an intermediate court before you get to the Supreme Court, you're not saying, I don't like the outcome. You're saying the previous decision maker screwed up and here's how. It's not they screwed up because they, they gave me the wrong decision. It's they screwed up because they went about the process the wrong way. You're really complaining that the process broke. And so that's yeah. why that became such an issue for the Supreme Court and why they had to decide it on the grounds was the process of the commission in Colorado. Did it break? And their answer was yes, it did break because they could have approached it in a neutral way and they didn't do it in a neutral way. <laughs> um, so I thought that was a, a sort of good example to the rest of the country that these cases aren't aren't sort of does the Supreme Court like or dislike, you know, the baking of cakes for gay couples. The question is, you know, are our state systems functioning as they should? And the question case of Colorado in this case was no, it's not. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, to sort of draw a little bit from uh, from this whole case right in the way especially in the way it was decided i thought this was a, a sort of a, a fascinating example of 
of why sort of crafting the right message in uh, maybe discussion or debate is really important. You know, there was a point in your episode with uh, Nikki on the caravan, right? Yeah. Where you had one of your Tatum tinkles on <laughs> on, uh, on how she, she really delivered a, you know, on how communicating effectively is really key. Yeah. You know, and I think this case exemplified that brilliantly. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think that if the Colorado Commission had been a little less emotional, about what had happened and a little more kind of detached and logical about the whole thing, they would have thought to themselves, okay, what do we need to do so that if this is appealed, the courts above see that we went about the process the right way. Mm. But nobody was thinking about that because they were so knee-jerk reaction, so emotional, like, how dare they? How dare they do this in our state? Yeah, Let's, let's crush them. And like, that's not the right approach as a state commission. And it's not the right approach on cross-examination. <laughs> or in your own life, right? When you're in, you know, when you're around the dinner table having those tough conversations with your aunts and uncle, like it's just not the right approach. Like, how can we crush that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and I'm also reminded here, you know, of uh, Dale Carnegie's book, classic book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Right. So important. I just recommended it to a friend last night. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, I, I read this just, I think, last year, right? And for the most part, it's a little bit cliche, but there are some really, really key insights that, that he brings up, psychological insights. Uh, number one, I think the, one of the most important things he brings up is that people like to feel that they're important. Yeah. And that this is such, and, and that this is an effective way to sort of appeal to them, or to, to connect to them, or to communicate effectively with them. Yeah. And and then and then sort of the the second message was um, that that I took away from that was that because people uh, put put their uh, self value as uh, they hold it in very high regard, whenever you communicate with them, your message is very very crucial in the way that it's phrased. So, you know, in the book, he would bring up examples like how do you craft a good email or how do you craft a good letter? You know, and, and how do you do this is that, you know, when you're requesting something, you don't bring up the request immediately, but you have to say something about the guest. And, you know, and then, and then that's how you appeal to their sense of importance. And then at the end, then they'll, they'll, they'll tend to reciprocate better to that. Yeah. And, oh, yeah, speaking of that, I've also noticed that um, there's one thing you do on your show. Which I just want to point out because I think it's brilliant, and and it is in it is written specifically in Carnegie's book as well, which is that um, after your guest has given their opening um, statements, their opening you know views, uh, you make it a point to say, "I appreciate you coming on here to talk about uh, talk about your views and laying them out for me." Yeah, yeah, I think that's so important, right? Because it's a scary thing to like put your deep feelings and deep opinions out there to the world. And I just want to reciprocate and say, thank you. Like that was really special and significant and it helped me already better understand where you're coming from. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, I just want to, you know, give a shout out to that because I think that is, that is a brilliant way in which you sort of conduct guests or interviews with guests or even cross-examine guests. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's good to know. That's good feedback. Yeah. All right. And um, yeah, so before we move on to the next podcast, do you have anything else to say about um, a year of listening? Just if you haven't checked it out, do that. Colleen's going to continue it beyond the one year mark. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of good episodes to come and I'm sure she's taking suggestions. If you go on her Facebook page, Year of Listening, uh, you just drop her a note about what you'd want to hear about. And I think she'd be up for it. Thank you.
Yeah, so now let's uh, move on to the second podcast. Uh, and this one is Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates. The episode in question is Are Teacher Unions to Blame for Failing Schools? Uh, so, Chris, can you please tell us a little bit about this podcast and what this episode is about? Intelligence Squared U.S. is the U.S. version of a podcast that started in the U.K. Um, I think it actually started as a sort of like actual sit down debates that maybe then started getting recorded, streamed, and then turned into a podcast. So that was in the UK. And in the US version, as in the UK version, it's sort of these Oxford style debates, which basically means two teams of two, sometimes two teams of three will have openings and then a middle section where they answer questions and then closings. Um, and so it's a very sort of natural feeling like you expect one side to sort of give the intro to their arguments and then you expect them to answer the tough questions and then you kind of hear them wrap up. And it's a great format for the people who are listening to Cross-Examine Life and they find themselves shouting at the podcast, you're not an expert in this. What's your experience? Where's the fancy letters <laughs> after your name? Do you have a PhD in this? And I have my own response to that that we can talk about in a minute if you'd like. But you know, if you do care about the people sort of being experts in these, everyone who comes on Intelligence Squared is an expert in their field. They usually have one or several books published. They're often a university professor. If not, they've worked at high levels of government or business. And they're, you know, they have a lot of life experience to advance the viewpoints that they are. Mm. The downside of that is I think they're not often the best communicators. Yeah. They have a ton of experience and expertise, but sometimes their pride gets in the way of good communication. And I think sometimes instead of actually debating the issue or sort of getting into the meat of it, they'll try to defend their experience or defend what they've seen and defend their argument um, in a way that, I don't know, I feel like sometimes kind of goes down rabbit holes and doesn't exactly address the main topic at hand because they're so concerned with maybe saving face. Yeah. Um, but overall, I want to praise it. It's a great podcast. If you're really into the episodes we talk about on Cross-Examine Life, I'm going to say there's a 50 to 75% crossover of topics mm. um, in Intelligence Squared. And so if you want to hear real experts, you know, debate some of these topics we raise on Cross-Examine Life, um, they do a pretty good job with that. Yeah. And then um, they also take ones that are pretty far outside the box too. Um, and just try to take creative approaches on, you know, things the culture's talking about. And I think they've done a very good job of mirroring the national conversation in the U.S. with topics that they choose. So yeah, um, they do a great staying current. Yeah, if if I recall correctly, you did an episode on charter schools, right? So There's this fantastic uh, documentary that I would recommend to your listeners called uh, "Waiting for Superman." And it might be on YouTube, probably like on Netflix or something like that. And Waiting for Superman is the story of public and charter schools in the United States and the movement to, I would say, bring down and disempower charter schools by teachers unions hmm. that work in public schools, right? And so the idea is that for a charter school to exist, it's going to get some money from the government. And the government takes that money from public schools. So teachers unions that are constantly fighting for better pay for teachers in the public schools are against charter schools because it's taking some of the money that would go to their better pay and sort of siphoning it off to these charter schools. And the argument goes, well, sometimes these charter schools have better performance, so they deserve some of that money. 
But then the teachers unions respond and say, well, sometimes those charter schools close after three years because they're poorly run or they're poorly managed. And, you know, it's kind of like a startup where nine out of 10 of them fail. Um, you know, so we're sort of flushing money down the toilet instead of giving it to the hardworking teachers in public schools that have part of this union and maybe deserve better pay. So I think there's strong arguments on both sides. Um, I think that the documentary is absolutely worth watching for anyone who wants to understand this issue better. And I thought that the episode of Intelligence Squared US that tackled the question of teachers unions did a really good job um, kind of sussing out this issue as well. Mm, yeah. So then uh, on this on this topic at hand, right, uh, teachers unions and failing schools, right? So the motion, the specific motion was don't blame teachers unions for our failing schools. And then on the fourth side, you had three guests, uh, Kate McLaughlin, who is an elementary school teacher in Lowell Public Schools in Massachusetts. You had Gary Smuts, who is a superintendent at the uh, ABC Unified School District. And then you had Randy Weingarten, who is president of the American Federation of Teachers, which is a teachers union. And then on the against side, you had uh, three opponents in Terry Moe, who is is the William Bennett Monroe Professor of Political Science at Stanford. You had Rod Page, the former U.S. Secretary of Education, and Larry Sand, elementary teacher, Webster Middle School. Um, so, Chris, I guess, how did you, how did you find the uh, debate breaking down? Well, I thought that both sides did a really good job of kind of advancing their arguments to begin with and explaining, you know, how teachers unions are so effective at making sure that teachers are there every day to provide quality education for students and can be relied on to show up and, you know, are really from the backbone of what we need to educate, you know, the least of these and that, you know, everyone doesn't get a chance to go to a charter school, but um, teachers unions make sure that everyone, no matter their income level, no matter their intelligence, receives, you know, the sort of constitutionally protected right to education. And, you know, I think I found that to be a really persuasive argument. But the, you know, folks, the three that you mentioned in favor of charter schools, you know, were basically saying, look, like, if we have two schools side by side and the charter schools are performing better and, you know, you don't have to like necessarily pay more to go there. It's just the government needs to give us more funds to operate them. And we're having better outcomes. Why not put our money there? Like we're literally throwing away money every day that we don't put it in charter schools because their numbers show that they perform better. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I thought that that set it up in a really good way. Yeah. So then, you know, how how the uh, debate turned out was that, um, and especially and especially, I just, I just want to make a point about the Oxford style of debate, right? Because how they determine who won the debate is by the uh, increase or the change in the people who voted. So they will have a post, they will have a pre-debate score of uh, you know who amongst the audience is for the for position, the against position, who is undecided. So on the in, in the pre-debate. In the pre-debate score, the we had 24% for the four position. The four position being that don't blame teachers unions for for failing schools. And then the against side, you had 43% and 33% undecided. And then how it went down was that the post-debate score, the four side, uh, they ended up with 25%. So they had a plus 1% change. The against side ended up with 68% or a plus 25% change and undecided um, changed by negative 26%. So 
in the end, the audience ended up um, siding with the against side. And, you know, on 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 the point of uh, that Oxford style debate, right, I think this is a really fast, a really interesting way to sort of decide debates, because you know sometimes you have issues whereby one side is particularly controversial, and you know, you, and depending on the audience, you might side with one one or another, right? So when you look at when you look at who's going to win, depending on um, you know how 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 much they've influenced the audience, I think that's a, a more accurate score of how well you did in the debate, for sure. For sure. Yeah, no, I think it's a good model. And I've really enjoyed listening to all the episodes of, you know, uh, Intelligence Squared. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm curious, right, on speaking more about the debate side of things, you know, uh, where do you think the the foresight went wrong on this issue? Or how do you think they could have done better in this debate? You know, the only problem I think that I really had was I think sometimes in the openings, I'd re- I'd wish that people would address what the opposing side just said, because they usually do like one person from one side and then another person from the other side. Mm. And then they go back to the side and then back to the second side. And so I wish that instead of having these sort of pre-prepared remarks that people just get up there and read or like read from bullets, that they would instead say, you know, the other side just opened and said these things. Uh, we're going to show you how those things are all wrong. <laughs> and here's how we're going to show you. You know, um, and they don't really do that. And then in the closing, similarly, they usually have like sort of pre-prepared closings and then they're kind of reading from it rather than saying like, let's look at the answers the other question gave or the other side gave to your questions. Here are where those answers are deficient. And here's the three questions that they left unanswered. Hmm. And I think that just puts you in a much stronger position as a debater. But, you know, that seldom happens. Right. Right. Is this is this just common for the uh, Oxford style particularly? To sort of have the red openings and red closings? Yeah. You know, not necessarily. I mean, it's certainly not part of the like, you know, policy or the format. I think what it is, is when you have high profile people on with letters after their names and fancy books, mm. <laughs> that they have a reputation to uphold. And the last thing they want to do is get up on stage and embarrass themselves. They're probably also really busy. So they don't have time to kind of practice this but if i'm on that show as you know someone who maybe has less of a reputation to uphold i'm gonna practice 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 an opening that makes sense practice a closing that makes sense but then be willing to like depart from that significantly depending on what comes up during the debate itself and i'll know that my audience will be much more interested in hearing something that's responsive to what's going on in the room Hmm. rather than you know hearing me read from something yeah, yeah, and I think that's a it's a particularly effective way of uh, of uh, of engaging the audience as well as if you respond respond to the opponent's arguments rather than just stating your position. Yeah, but um, I, w- I just want to talk about that issue that you brought up way back when you first introduced this uh, uh, this podcast. Uh, the issue of uh, I would say credibility. Yeah, you know, you mentioned you mentioned how. Um, you know, some people would ask, would, would yell at you for for not having all these credentials and not being an, an uh, a figure of authority in these different fields, right? Yep. Uh, so this is generally classed as uh, appeals to authority. Yep. What are your views on this? All right, Danny, I have a series of questions for you. All right. In the 1950s, if you had switched on a television and you saw a Harvard professor being interviewed about a subject. And he was asked factual questions and provided answers to those factual questions. What would your assumption be? That he knew what he was talking about. And you would go forward in life believing that those facts are correct, right? Yeah. All right. 
2018. You switch on the TV, you see a Harvard professor being interviewed, and he's stating certain factual positions about things. Uh, what's your assumption? Well, if you know 2018, we have access to a lot more information now. But if you're not willing to go out and look up those facts, then yeah, I would still assume, yeah, the, the Harvard professor knew, knows what he's talking about. Well, wouldn't your assumption be a little different and be he may or may not be correct? I could go double check him, but right now I'm too lazy to do that. It could. Isn't that probably like the more accurate sort of thing going through your mind? Like, I hear what he's saying. That's interesting. He's probably correct, but he also might not be correct. And I could totally go find out if I accessed information to demonstrate whether or not he's correct. And then right now I'm going to choose to either do that or not do that. Yeah. And I think this, uh, it goes a little deeper than that. It's like, Maybe you could look at, you know, if you're particularly invested in this position, in this viewpoint or not, if it's agreeable to your own views, you know, maybe if, if, if the speaker said something that you like, you wouldn't actually go out and research it. Right. Only if it's something that, that you, you don't think uh, is uh, favorable to your own view, then you will go and look it up. Yeah. And then maybe you can also think about like the credibility of the person itself, right? Yeah. If it's just some random guy on the street, you know, you'd be more skeptical than if it was like a Bill Gates or something. <laughs> Yeah, and and I agree that certainly depending on how much we agree with a viewpoint, depend you know will factor into whether or not we go to look it up. But I do think that something has shifted in the information age, in the Wikipedia age, where we can find out just about any fact we want to. I think that's what shifted is when we hear that Harvard professor say that a thing is a certain thing or a study says a certain something. That I think, if we're really honest with ourselves, what's going on in our head is, well. They're probably right, but they might also be wrong. <laughs> and I don't know. It's certainly going on in my head every time I hear someone. Um, and many, you know, probably 10 times out of 10 or nine times out of 10, I don't go and look it up. I don't go and check, you know, but one time out of 10, I do. Um, but that's not really the point, whether or not I look it up or not. The point is, I think we're rightfully more skeptical because we have the ability to double check people. They say, well, the study done by this university says this is the case. Hmm. Well, that's fine. You can go and look up and see that the study says that. But what about the 14 other studies that they failed to mention right. that you find in search? Right. You know, those matter, right? The fact that that Harvard professor who came on had an agenda about that topic and chose not to mention those 14 studies, that means something. That's evidence. Hmm. And so it's a lot less interesting to me to have that Harvard professor come on or someone with fancy letters after their name and say, this is how things are. Well, because we can all really figure out how things are. We can go online and see if that's true. A perfect example of this is my episode um, about guns. Hmm. Um, again, after Las Vegas, I had a guest come on episode 27 and argue that we don't need greater gun control. And he started his argument by stating certain facts and statistics about gun violence in the United States. And then what happened was a listener who was paying close attention and knew something about the issue said, oh, actually, uh, he's mistaken. Um, some of the facts that he mentioned were later proven to be untrue. Hmm. And here's the articles that show that was the case. And I really, really appreciated that because that is basically the function. That's basically the system functioning as it should be. Hmm. And so I 
began the next episode, episode 28, by saying, hey, y'all remember episode 27 about gun violence. I just need to correct some of the facts that my guest said at the top of the episode. He said A, B, and C, and actually D, E, and F are true. So just sort of keep that in mind, you know, in retrospect, as you think about that episode. Hmm. And right, like that's what it is to be in a democracy. That's what it is to be in a system where we have unlimited information available to us. We go fact check people and we say that person was right, that person was wrong, and here's how it affects their argument. But, you know, just because I bring on the best podcaster of all time to my show <laughs> doesn't mean it doesn't mean he's going to have the best answer to where should I advertise my podcast. Right. Right? He may not. The 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 field of podcast advertising might have shifted ever so slightly in the last six months that now he forgot to pay attention to that shift and he's kind of been riding high with his numbers and you know really excited that he gets all these downloads through some other font but he doesn't know that this one sort of you know advertising system is, has shifted and you know when he's called to answer a question about that he actually says the wrong thing he says something that's inaccurate mm. and you know it's not because he's worthless not because he's stupid it's just because no one has all the answers and we shouldn't treat anybody like they do yeah and so you know, my position is you're passionate about this. You know something about it. You can talk basically intelligently about it. Come on the episode, defend it, explain it. If people want to prove you wrong, great. The system's working as it should. <laughs> but you don't need to answer initials after your name to come on cross-examine life. Yeah, it's, that's uh, fantastic. And I, I wholeheartedly agree um, with your view on uh, appeal to authority in that you know, especially in this day and age, you can go look up information yourself. So there's no reason why you should be just name dropping or credential dropping and using that as your argument. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and I guess I just want to say that the, the reason why I brought that up is because, especially in say, online, or maybe even personal debates, this, this uh, argument gets used quite frequently, right? Appeal to authority. Because it's sort of a it's it's sort of an easy cop out answer in a sense that you can use it to deflect or uh, bring down a person's position without actually addressing it by just saying that hey the person who spoke it is not is not this this uh it doesn't have this credential or what so you know what 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 uh, what uh what what merit does he have or or what ground does he have to stand on to legitimize his claims. Yeah, but but do you want to hear about my favorite response to that? Yeah, I'm I'm I want to know how you respond to that, please. When when you're attacked, when someone says, "Well, you don't have the expertise to talk about this," or you don't you don't know what you're talking about, the response the response that I like to give is, "I invite you, and please show me where I am wrong." Huh? Right. So what you're what you're impliedly saying is, I might not be an expert. I might not have fancy letters after my name. But I've done some reading about this. And what I've said is based on the reading that I've done, it's based on like a reasonable understanding. So the things that I wrote, the things that I claimed, please show me where I got it wrong. I want to be correct on the facts just as much as you do. Mm. If I got the facts wrong, I'll go and I'll get the right facts. But please, for the love of God, show me what I got wrong so I can correct it. Mm. And it works so well because people either are too lazy to correct you 
or they say, here, your sentence number three is wrong, and here's why, and then you go and do more research about sentence number three, and you can come back and either say, oh, you were totally right, I forgot to read that one source, mm. here, I've changed sentence three now, please check it, or you can say, uh, you were mistaken, here's my 15 sources that prove sentence number three is correct, do you argue with these 15 sources? And then you can have that conversation. Hmm. That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and, that, and that keeps it respectful too, right? Because then you're sort of putting the control in their lap and saying, you know, I, I defer to you. Like, I, I'm not an expert. I'm not a genius. But please, you, if, if you know more, exactly. show me where I'm wrong. Exactly. Because, um, you know, I think instinctively, right, when people attack your credibility, your, your instinct is to be defensive. It's to say that, you know, well, but I, I found my sources from here, here, and here, you know, and stuff like that. You know, well, I'm still going through school or, you know, stuff like that. But I think your move is pretty interesting in the sense that you you sort of shift the burden of proof to them and say, okay, show me where I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah. You have a problem yeah. with what I'm saying? You think it's incorrect? Great. Point it out. <laughs> Fascinating. Yeah. All right. So, yeah. And, um... Yeah, so do you have anything else to say about the uh, podcast Intelligence Squared US debates in general or maybe the topic at hand? Um, just, you know, check it out. Check out the UK version, Intelligence Squared UK. There's some good ones there. I think they're a little longer too. Um, so mm. a bit more of a philosophical slog. Um, but the US ones are great. And you can catch them if you're in like New York or Philadelphia or Washington, D.C. Um, you can sort of like attend a live one. It's like 25 bucks or something. It's pretty reasonable. So you can be part of the voting audience. Wow. All right. And uh, with that brings the end to today's episode. Thank you so much, Chris, for coming on. Oh, Danny, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I love what you're doing here. And I love the idea of kind of getting podcasters to talk about the other podcasts that they love. I think it's going to be a great way for people to, uh, you know, hear other podcasts that would be a good fit for them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. And uh, so for people who are interested interested in getting in touch with you or finding your podcast, where can they do so? So you can find Cross-Examined Life on any podcast player. It's three words, Cross-Examined Life. Uh, you can also send me an email if you'd like to questions at crossexaminedlife.com. And special bonus, if you record yourself in uh, po Facebook Messenger saying something nice about Cross-Examined Life, I will find a way to download that. I've done this before and then incorporate it into the episode. So, um, yeah, I always love putting praise about cross-examined life in the episode and, uh, you know, would be happy to share anything that people leave. All right. So if you like this episode, please do a big favor by sharing it amongst your friends or by subscribing to the Economical Rise podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. All the links and details to the shows discussed in this episode will be available in the show notes on the website www.economicalrisepodcast.com. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or feedback for the show, you can drop a message on the social media links below. Once again, this has been your host, Danny, with special guest Chris Tatum at the podcast. Podcast Spotlight, the show by podcast fans for podcast fans. Mm -hmm.